Hey everyone, on today's episode, I have a super special guest for you, Dr. John DeGarmo. He is the founder and director of the Foster Care Institute, and he has authored several foster care books, including the new book, The Little Book of Foster Care Wisdom, 365 Days of Inspiration and Encouragement for Foster Care Families, the best-selling book, Faith in Foster Care, as well as the Foster Care Children's book, A Different Home, A New Foster Child Story. But what is probably most relevant about Dr. John's experience is that he has fostered over 60 children in his home. He has adopted children, and he really has the full perspective on being a foster parent and the practical tools that foster parents need uh, to enter this work and remain in it through all the highs and the lows that being a foster parent or an adoptive parent can bring. Because of his experience and because of some of the, the system's failings and because of some of the unique challenges this population faces, he has recently pursued legislator on this he has recently pursued legislation on the state level and on the national level so that the experience for children in foster care can be reformed. So he's all over the place, literally, like he's on a bunch of different networks. He's been on Good Morning America. He has a TEDx talk that's really in, informative and just a beautiful kind of depiction of the grief that a foster parent can go through dealing with the system and losing a child uh, that they thought they were going to adopt. So definitely check that out. Probably his most valuable resource that he has is the Foster Care Institute. And this is where you can get over 50 hours of CEUs. If you're a foster parent, you can, uh, you need to get CEUs to keep your foster care license. So he has over 50 hours of that and webinars and all sorts of resources uh, at the Foster Care Institute. So you can Google that and I'll link to it. Uh, great resource if you are a foster adoptive parent or if you are a service provider to offer this to your families. All right. Without further ado, let's talk to Dr. John. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma, from foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond. We'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Well, thank you so much for being on the Stable Moments podcast. I have seen you all over and all over social media and really giving um, great advice and help and support to foster and adoptive parents. Now, the audience for this podcast is foster and adoptive parents, but also service providers, but non-clinical service providers, typically. So people that might mentor um, children that have had early developmental trauma or someone that might run a program. So tell me a little bit about your background, how you got started in this work, what your education's in. You can start there. Sure, thanks for asking. So I'm Dr. John DeGarmo, the founder and director of the Foster Care Institute. And uh, I've been a foster parent, adoptive parent myself to 60 plus children, almost two decades now. Never really planned on doing it. Never was something I considered thought about, uh, was on my radar. In fact, pretty much the opposite. 
I believed a lot of the myths and misconceptions that surround foster care, the children and the foster parents. Uh, I think I, I, my wife and I became foster parents. It wasn't until after the death of our first child from a condition called anencephaly, or some pronounce it anencephaly. It's a condition where the brain and skull never truly forms. And um, to be honest with you, I did not experience grief in a healthy fashion. My wife did, but I pushed it aside, buried it down, threw myself in my work because I thought at the time, 25 plus years ago, that men don't cry. I must be strong for my wife. So I denied my feelings, which is, you know, really the worst thing I could have done for, for my wife and myself. But it wasn't until years later when I was able to finally accept my grief and accept the death of the child that my wife and I, uh, we, were, we were living in a small rural town at that time in, in, in middle Georgia, United States, and we recognized there was a need for children uh, to have some type of stability, structure, safety through a foster care program. And, you know, we thought we lost our first child. How can we help other kids? We had three healthy children by that point. We wanted, we wanted to help more. So that led to foster parenting, and that leads to what I do today. That's awesome. So you said that um, through your grief, you threw yourself into your work. What was your work back then? At that time, uh, my wife was going to college in Australia, where she's from, and I was managing a sports and recreation center, which was not at all my passion, but, you know, I was paying the bills at the time. Um, it wasn't until years later we moved back to the States where after I became a foster parent, I, I got my doctorate uh, in a foster care study. Um, and, um, and now I, I'm the director of the foster care institute. Sure, sure. So you chose to foster adopt. Was this more your wife's idea? Was it more your idea? I came home to her one day and I was teaching English at, this, at the time in a very small rural school. And I had, a, I've noticed a lot of students coming through my classroom who had issues of attendance and behavior and academics. And I saw the root of the problem was in this low income area was um, their environment. So I said to my wife one day, I said, Hey, I got a student who is a, she's a senior, she's pregnant with triplets. And I know the environment that these children will be raised in. It's not a healthy one. What if, what if we, what if we adopted them? And she said to me, and I wished I had listened to her. She said, as long as you change the diapers. Well, I changed diapers. We had at least one baby in the house that needed diapers for 20 years straight. And wow. I was in charge of the diaper changing. In fact, at one point we had seven in diapers. Should I got my, should I got my doctorate in diaper changing? <laughs> and if I had listened to her, you know, it may have been a different story. So you did take those three triplets in? No, we didn't. We had, we went, that 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 began the the uh, conversation. Okay, how do we become foster parents? Uh, you went to the training and and all of that. Very cool. Okay, so tell me about your first couple placements. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, you know, my wife uh, she had a degree in in linguistics and psychology. I've been a teacher for some time. We had three children of our own. We went to the classes. We thought, yeah, we're ready for this. We're prepared for this. We, we got a good head on our shoulders here. And I recognized within 20 minutes of my first placement that, oh, I am not ready for this. This is, this is a lot more than I thought it'd be. Why is this child screaming? Why is this child yelling at us? Why is this child running to the kitchen and trying to grab a knife and, and stab my wife and I? The child was four years of age and mm -hmm. she had a, um, uh, four-month-old sister, and it was uh, very eye-opening. You know, at the same time, five months later, when the children left, 
I also recognize, oh my gosh, I'm not ready for this either. What's happening to my heart? I, mm -hmm. My heart's breaking for these kids. They told me this would happen, but I didn't think it happened this much. I'm really attached. I, I guess they really love these kids. That made me realize the feelings of grief and loss for foster parents are very, very real. Very, very real. Um, you know, that was a, that was a, a neat experience at first placement. I learned a lot. But you know what? As foster parents, I believe we learn something new every single time is a placement of a child in our home because every child is coming to us with the unique situations with unique anxiety all their own so it's a continuing learning curve which is uh, something I enjoy I, you know I love to learn something every day do you have like an agreement with your wife have you like decided how many you take in at one time or do you have a specific like birth order criteria you you stick to we used to. We used to have uh, we we had the rule that no child plays in our home older than our own biological ones. I think maybe the fourth year, maybe the fifth year, we threw that out the window. We had a phone call for a a thirteen year old boy. Uh, I think my at the time my daughter my oldest daughter was ten, and we had some trepidations about. It. We had some concerns about. It. We said to the we heard the story of the child. Um, and my, I told the caseworker, well, my wife and I, we're going to try this. We're going to try it because you're desperate. They needed a home then and there. We said, we'll try it. And if it doesn't work out, you know, if our own children are in danger in some way, we can't have this continue. Um, health to be removed. And you know what? It was a fantastic placement. Um, it went so well. Um, really benefit the entire family. So we threw that rule out the window. We've had as many as 11 kids in our house at the same time. Mm. So we throw out the numbers as well. <laughs> and it, because, you know, in most states like Georgia, the number is six, uh, but they've, they've been so desperate and they recognize, Hey, there's Dr. John. He's a foster care expert. The family's been on TV a lot. They know what they're doing. We'll shove them in their house. Uh, and we signed waiver after waiver after waiver. We got to the point though, where I was speaking at an event in a, in a different state. I was training foster parents at a conference and we had 11 kids. My wife was home by herself with 11 kids. And she got a phone call for her 12th child. And they said, Dr. my wife's a doctor too. Dr. Kelly, we're so desperate. We need someone to, not someone for these kids. And my wife said, you know, I got 11. I can't. There's no place for them to sleep. How about the couch? You don't understand. How can I get 12 kids to work at the school the next morning with one car? I can't. I can't do it. Can't do it. Um, so that's when we recognize, you know what? We need to control this a little bit better. Sure. What, at what point? Through all of this, did you say, okay, I need to pursue my PhD. I need to fulfill a, a greater need here. So I was teaching at the time um, in this rural county, and I, and I noticed that my fellow teachers were not equipped, were not trained, did not really recognize the many challenges that children in foster care have while in school. Mm -hmm. uh, before I was a foster parent, I didn't either. I just kind of made those assumptions about the kids. Um, but then when I became a foster parent, I recognized, oh my goodness, these kids are slipping through the cracks. 55% are dropping out of school. There's a reason why this is. They're at least 18 months behind academically. There's a reason why that is. School is the last place they want to be. There's a reason why this is. My fellow teachers didn't recognize this. So I thought, okay, how can I bring together teachers, foster parents, caretakers care i'm sorry caseworkers all together to form a team if you will for the purpose of the child to help the child succeed and navigate the many challenges they face in school and that was my doctorate 
Very cool. So yeah, that's awesome because I know I'm a post or I was a post adoption case manager. So I felt like I spent a lot of my time going into schools and advocating for IEPs or 504s um, and mainly just giving some trauma education for uh, teachers to kind of stay attuned and notice things before they get to a point where uh, the child being super disruptive in the classroom. So I, I really like that, you know, kids spend a lot of time at school. So the more we can get the whole team on board. Now, since you've done that, I don't know if that study was published or, or whatever, but since you've done that, have you been able to do more work in school that's like replicated outside of your rural county? Well, the study has been uh, printed in a book. I've actually got a book called Helping Foster Children in School. It's one of my, one of my dozen books. Uh, and I do work with schools across the country in that regard, uh, as well as a number of things. That's great. Okay, well, so we'll definitely, we're going to link to a lot of your stuff, but I definitely want to link to that book because I know, I know that foster and adoptive parents have issues with the schools. And sometimes it just takes a third perspective or an advocate to go in because, you know, they can be seen as a parent that just, you know, lets their kid get away with everything or is a helicopter parent or whatever. So I'll definitely link to that as, as a resource. So what have been some of your biggest challenges as a foster parent over the years? Like you weren't prepared for for these challenges at all? Well, you know, I, I want to say that it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Most rewarding thing at the same time, but it's the hardest thing. There have been those times where I've questioned the system. There have been those times where I've been frustrated with a decision made by the court. There have been times I felt like I've not gotten the support and resources that my family needed. I've been those times when I've been frustrated with the birth parents for making false accusations and allegations to us about us. But at the same time, every child's made me better in some way. Every placement has made my family so much richer. Um, you know, some of the unique, I guess, the specific challenges, uh, we've faced, we have faced two false accusations against our family, which is normal for foster parents. You know, I've been spat on, I've been, I've been um, accused in court, my wife's been fouled in a car, we've had those things happen to us. Um, there have been some situations. My TED Talk, my TED Talk is 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 a prime example of what drives me to care for, to 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 help the system make it a better one. After a child in our house for almost two years and trying to adopt her, and then and then suddenly within 24 hours she was removed from my home right before Christmas, three days before Christmas, placed with an aunt, uncle in another state whom she'd met once in her life, and it went completely downhill from there. And she was uh, eventually placed back in foster care in another state after years of rape. And now uh, it's a very, very bad situation, tragic situation for her. Um, that's been very disappointing. Um, you know, there's, there's been, sure, it, it, there's been some tough ones, tough, tough situations from, from watching my own children grieve as well when they lose a sibling, a foster sibling, if you will. That's been tough. Uh, coming home, four failed adoptions, four mm. failed adoptions has been heart wrenching coming home one day, three weeks after a child was removed from my home that we were hoping to adopt and watching my seeing my wife crumpled on the bathroom floor in tears suffering from grief that's been tough as well but again it's something i would i i'm so glad we've done and, and i would never change so for 
listeners that that uh, hear about these false allegations or possibly have endured them themselves, I know several of the dads that I used to work with just got really disheartened, not only to their, their decision to adopt, but they really didn't want any connection with their adoptive daughter at this point or whatever because of all the allegations and especially allegations of sexual trauma can just be so difficult for a dad to deal with. So what advice do you have for not taking these super personal allegations personally and staying strong through the process of investigation, which unfortunately a lot of foster adoptive parents have to go through? Well, you, you mentioned it, not taking it personal. You know, that's hard to do sometimes, not taking it personally. Um, you know, I've been called every name in the book, as you can imagine, from a lot of different people. But I have to recognize this is not about me. Mm. This is about the person who is suffering. That child who is, who is placed in my home, who's scared and frightened and confused and in, in fear and, and, and not sure why she's in my house, not sure why she's been removed from her family, not sure if her family even loves her anymore. Not sure she'll ever see them again and she might either withdraw or lash out and say some horrible things to my wife and i and our family it's not about me it's about that child who's scared a child who's afraid their their feelings are overwhelming them they don't know how to process it and it's one way they they, they try to process it is is to lash out it's not about me i can't take that personal for that for that birth parent who might be so frustrated with their situation who might be grieving the loss of their own child or maybe overwhelmed with guilt because they made poor choices or suffering from their own trauma, their own previous trauma that was never resolved in some way or they never got the help. They may make some horrible statements about my wife and I. Can't take it personal. And that's, that's easier said than done. You have to ground yourself and remind yourself, you know what, I need to step back. This is not about me. Let me take a breath here. It's about the person who is in pain and maybe I can help that person, whether it's the child or the parent. Uh, you know, also documentation is essential. I, I, one of my more popular webinars that the foster parents do is that of documentation. Foster parents have to document everything. I mean everything in a fashion that's not emotional, not biased, not leaning towards themselves, but just facts. Everything that might happen, um, everything that happens with the child, the child scrapes himself in a knee falling off a bike, document time and place and what you did how the child did in school, what happened to visitation, anything might, anything, these documents, because if an allegation might come forth, you've got that evidence with you, the documentation. Well, this is what really happened. This is what was really said. This is what we really did in this response. Um, so that, you know, that does help. Yeah. I have helped a few parents self-report. They call Department of Children and Families and say, before she goes to school on Monday, you know, I was throwing a bottle in the recycling and she walked into the line of fire and she has a black eye um, or something like that, where it's like, listen, you're better off reporting this, being the first one to call, because that sounds, that sounds a little sketchy, but a lot more sketchy if it's a story after the school has already called to say somebody has a black eye. Right. Right, right. Or the child goes to a visitation and the child has a big bruise on the shoulder because they fell off a bike or they fell down the stairs or a baseball hit them, you know, and they say, well, what happened here? Is foster parent, is foster parent abusing my child? And the caseworker can say, well, actually, the foster parents already reported it and this is what happened. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and another piece on uh, documentation is I don't know how many parents I would ask a child's behavior had escalated to the point where typically you would call in some type of either crisis line or you would call in some type of field crisis response or even the police and the parents say no we stopped calling that line because it never helps or they never get to us or we're never triaged properly and I know as a social worker I was always like you have to call because they're assuming nothing's happening in your house and everything's fine. And even if it's just a call to say there's a problem, that's at least you can say I've called 280 times in the last four months. Right. I have made a report. I filed a report. Absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So documentation, not only the things that happen in your house as far as bumps and bruises and scratches and interactions, but also documentation if you need to, to let the county or your caseworker know that uh, there's issues that they should be made aware of. So at sure. least later on, you can use it as evidence right? if you need to. Okay, well, so what were your, first of all, what was the relationship with your bio kids and foster kids at first like what was the process for them as far as allowing children into the home your you know explanation to them of what you're doing and how you're embarking on this journey how receptive were they to it well you know for my kids it's really their norm for my biological children it's really their normal lifestyle because we've been doing it since my oldest was i think maybe six five and three that might be right um, so they haven't really known anything different. Now we do a few things for each placement. We set them down and, and talk about the child, why the child might be placed in a home, a little bit of background information about the child so they can have some type of empathy or understanding why, um, you know, within reason. Um, uh, we, uh, we talk about, hey, are you, are you ready for this? Because, you know, sometimes my kids might not be in a place where they might need to break themselves. They might need some more time with mom and dad. Um, so, you know, not, we don't accept every placement because we got to look at how this is going to affect the whole family. Um, you know, my children sometimes have really formed incredible, fantastic relationships with these kids. Um, at the same time, there have been those children who, who my own kids have said, Dad, Mom, these kids are driving us crazy. You know, they're, 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 they're driving us crazy. Um, so, you know, it's a mix. It's a mix. But, but at the end, though, I think that I, I really hope that my children have learned the uh, importance of helping others of serving others my parents my kids may never become foster parents but i hope at the end of the day they lead a life of service in some fashion yeah absolutely and at least they know the uh, you know the struggles of the system they have a trauma lens they know what these children have been through and we can use that more in our community well i love that so what are the conversations that you have with foster kids that enter your home? Like, how does your decision to adopt some or, you know, how does that play out? Well, you know, we've, so we've adopted three, four field adoptions. We, uh, we have adopted those children who've, who've come, who had, have had their parental rights terminated. And it just seemed like a natural fit. And every child that comes to our house, we don't have a label of foster, biological, or adoptive. They're all our family members. Um, and we treat them that way. And it's important that we do treat them that way and give them the unconditional love they need. They don't need to seem like a label. So we really work hard on that. Um, we try to include them in everything. We include some of their own traditions, you know, if we're allowed to do that. Um, we, we listen a lot. 
We don't judge. We try to answer their questions as honestly as we can in an age-appropriate fashion. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, we, we, we really enjoy including them in their family. You know, so many times uh, we introduce them to something brand new they've never done before. Take them to Disney World, uh, take them camping, mm-hmm. uh, going to the movie theaters, you know, going su- swimming in, a, in our pool, um, to camp, a lot of things. So uh, it, we, we do a, f- a few things to, to include them in the family. Yeah, I love the uh, no labels. I had heard from a, a another guest that was very, very strongly believed that we had to stop calling them foster kids. She was a foster child herself and now does foster care trainings. Uh, but she said that label is just, it, it really hurt her growing up. And she said, you know, she hears a lot of foster parents saying like, this is foster son 15, this is foster son 12. Um, and she was like, you need to say, this is Kyle, he's seven and he loves cars. Like, it's, it's not that difficult. Yes, right, absolutely right. When you say something like, this is Kyle, Kyle's stainless, we are very fortunate to have Kyle being part of our pa- family right now. Yeah, I love that. So, okay, so dropping the labels. And I love that you are able to give them experiences that they possibly haven't had and make them feel part of your family for however long that they're there. Have you had any placements that you have had to ask to have them moved? Twice. And uh, those are very hard, very hard decisions. Um, But I recognize now that they're decisions we had to make for the well-being, mental health, and safety of the rest of the people in our family. One time it was when we had 11 in the house and we had to have one removed because uh, there was so much child had reactive attachment disorder and there was so much trauma and anxiety in that child that nobody else in the home felt comfortable, safe, if you will. Um, so we had to make the decision to have the child removed and we had to have another child removed for a, a similar situation. Um, and you know what? I felt guilty about both those for a very, very long time. I felt, you know, I wish I could have done something different. Maybe I could have done something different. Maybe it's something we could have done. We let this child down. But I also had to recognize this. I have to determine if this is a good fit for my family and if my family is a good fit for that child, if I can provide the resources for that child needs. If, and if not, there's a no to one of those things. There's a better home for that child. There's a better environment for that child. And I'm just allowing, um, the child to have a better place. Now, again, I don't like doing that because I don't like multiple displacement. I want a child to recognize that, you know what, when you come to our house, when we say we love you, we mean it. We say you're part of our family, we mean it. Unfortunately, in 60 plus children, there have been those two occasions where you said, you know what, this is hurting everybody in our family and some of us are even at risk as a result. Mm. I totally get that. I, I do, did just want to bring it up because for our listeners, I don't, I think that's a huge worry of somebody maybe wanting to choose to foster you know they feel like it's so permanent and they feel like it's such a big responsibility and it is in so many ways Um, but you are able to accept or decline a child into your home based on whatever criteria is your criteria and if you get to a point where you need you feel like a child needs additional resources or a higher level of care that is okay I, i just wanted to bring it up so that people knew that it's an option and that it's okay to put your biological children first or to put the rest of the mental health of your whole family first and and 
through those decisions, you were able to be more available and create a better environment for, for those in your family. Yes, and you, you point, you, you, you keyed on something that's important. You've got to put your own children and family first because at the end of the day, when the children from foster care leave your home, you still got to make sure that you have your own children you know, with you and they're safe, they're, they're, they're physically, emotionally, mentally sound and healthy. Um, you can't put them at risk in any, any fashion. So it, it's important. So sometimes those decisions, those hard decisions have to be made. Um, you know, when we had 11 in the house and the one was just, uh, one, one was just taking up all of our time, my wife's and I time, the other 10 children were slipping through the cracks and that was not something we could allow. Mm. Yeah. So have you had to make a, um, like accommodations in your home over the years, like switching bedrooms, making things, uh, you know, rearranging the kitchen. We hear all the time about, you know, making food less accessible. Have you had multiple adaptations to your living environment? Sure, we've had three new bedrooms. <laughs> we have, uh, my, my man cave is no longer, it is not a bedroom. Um, the room, the place we had a hot tub, took the hot tub out, walled it in, it's now a bedroom. Uh, attic space, now a bedroom. Uh, the cars we drive, unfortunately they've gotta be cars, they're not, they're not the 66 convertible, candy apple red leather seat interior Mustang that I've always dreamed of. It is a big van that I never want to drive in public. Um, but you know, yeah, you got a lot of accommodations. A lot of, the lifestyle of a boss parent is very different than anybody else. Um, and, and you're always making some sort of sacrifice as you're bringing children to your home with anxieties. We can't, at the drop of a hat, go off to the movies. We can't go off to shopping or dinner because we're, we have these children placed in our home. So it's a very different lifestyle. You're always making some sort of sacrifice. That's okay. So I know for foster parents, you have to typically have like a respite approved or a foster care license provider just to, just to watch your kids, just to have a babysitter. Um, does the Department of Children and Families offer you a good list of that? Are those people easy to find? Do you have to solicit your family and friends to go get licensed so that they can watch these kids? Well, my I'm in Georgia. My family lives in Michigan. My wife's family is in Australia. So we think Michigan's rather close to Georgia because you can actually hop in the car and be there 18 hours later. So right. We know we don't have that type of support in our area. We are in a small, small county of about 3,000 people in our town, not many foster parents. So respite care is scarce, um, but we have used it before and it's so important. I often encourage foster parents to use respite care because it's a valuable resource for foster parents and for people who can't be foster parents full time. Respite care can be a wonderful way to serve as well or might be a good introduction to foster care. Um, if they want to be foster parents, you know, I say, well, you know, you're unsure. Maybe you want to try being a respite parent first, you know, for the, over the weekends to some of the kids. We've used respite care uh, a few times, uh, and I've been so grateful for that when we've been able to do so. It's a fantastic um, support for foster parents when you, you know, there might be those times where you've got to hop out of town for a funeral or a wedding, or maybe you, you're, you got a, pl a pre-planned vacation you plan a year ago before, before a child's placed in your home and you simply can't take the child with you. Um, or there might be a time where your own kids say, you know what, mom, dad, we need you for a little bit of time. So, you know, so maybe a weekend um, together is important as well. Circle those wagons, so to speak, to refresh yourself, to recharge those batteries. There's a number of reasons why respite care is a great program and, and we've done it a few times. 
do you in your area do you find that people that are respite caregivers have been previous foster parents like i just don't feel like it's out there and advertised that this is something that people can do and it seems like such a an interim option you know if they're not wanting to make take on the full uh responsibility of foster care that respite could be something that's a great option but i don't really hear it advertised no no i don't either i think respite care is underutilized um, and under suggested, you know, in my book, The Church and Foster Care, I talk about how people of faith can serve in their own mission field, in their own community uh, by being respite parents. Um, there is, it's, as you said, it's not being, it's not being encouraged enough. I don't think it's being, I think it's not understood by foster parents. I don't think agencies utilize it to the amount that they can. Yeah, I might do some pushing on that and figure out some resources because there's a lot of people, Stable Moments is a mentorship program and there's people that want to give one hour a week uh, to children in foster care. Um, but those same families would probably be interested in being a respite care provider. Um, so I'll look into the resources to give my audience because uh, it seems like, I, I mean, I have parents that just want to go Christmas shopping for their kids and they don't have a, you know, a service provider for that. <laughs> right. right. Understood. So, yeah. Understood. Yeah. I totally agree. That's um, yeah, that's interesting. Cause I never really hear, I always hear like you can foster a kid or you can bake a lasagna for somebody that's fostering a kid, but there's a lot of in between area that, that seems like it needs to be filled. So tell me about some of your biggest wins. Like, this is why we do this. When the uh, seven-year-old boy who was so filled with anger, so filled with anger, and really had nothing to say to my wife or I pleasant ever, when he left after four months, looked at my wife and said, I love you, mommy. Uh, when another child, uh, a child who had never spoken before, because of the abuse they had had, I think the child was maybe two or three, first words were, I love you to my wife. Um, the 17 year old came to us who had been abused by so many families, actually adopted by a couple of families, um, and didn't trust anybody, had tremendous issues of trust and attachment. Um, now she is working for an agency, um, child welfare agency. She is, uh, we're, we're part of her family. Her kids are, are, um, are we're her grandparents to those kids. Uh, a couple kids who are in college now and doing so very well. Um, you know, when I look back at Christmas time and I see 20 plus kids in our house, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a victory right there. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I always want to let our audience know about the rewards of this work because I hear from everyone. I mean, it's just like parenting in general. It's going to be the hardest job you've ever done. And it's going to be the most rewarding job you've ever done. And there's a reason why, so many of the foster parents that I serve all have 15 passenger vans, and that's not because they did it once and stopped, right? <laughs> so, um, so what brought you to founding uh, the Foster Care Institute? Tell us a little bit about the road from foster parent and teacher to uh, the director of the, the Foster Care Institute. So when I finished my doctorate, I recognized I love the writing process. I want to keep writing. That led to a couple of different books being published. 
that led to me training foster parents and doing some speaking engagements in my nearby area to the um, entire country and now globally, um, so which led to the Foster Care Institute. The Foster Care Institute, we provide a number of resources and support for foster parents and agencies. We have over 50 hours of online training webinars foster parents can sign up for or their agencies can use for their foster parents. We, uh, we have a program where we uh, train foster care agencies on how to create strong recruitment programs. Mm. We now have online virtual orientation for foster care agencies during this time of shelter in place. We can't meet each other. So foster care agencies now are using this online virtual program to, to for orientation for new foster parents. Um, hundreds of articles, videos, podcasts from my days in radio and a whole lot more there. That's awesome. So the orientation for foster care uh, parents or people that want to be foster care parents, that's something that they could do online. And well, the, actually the agency, agency uses that program for their orientation for new foster parents. So an agency might say, you know what, Dr. John, we want to, uh, we can't meet in place with our new foster parents, but we want to utilize your services. So it's a five week course of 15 hours of training where the agencies use those they use the quizzes, they use the book, they use the webinars. And what the agencies do is they just go ahead and do the house inspection, the background checks, and they usually utilize our program for their orientation training. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. So it's more of a business to business model for you, but if people were interested, they could ask their different agencies if they have an online option and if they don't, they could say, well, there is one that they can get um, to help support more families. Because especially right now, I know, you know, the world's just going virtual as it is. Okay, so that's awesome. So if people want to get more, you know, tapped into all of these resources that they have, I will link to it, but just let them know where to go. Oh, thanks for asking. The Foster Care Institute, or just search my name, Dr. John DeGarmo, foster care expert. You know, the, uh, the online training programs have been very, very helpful for foster parents right now when they can't get out and get their, their licensing hours to keep their house certified this year, or, you know, the CEUs that they need. So they sign up for the Foster Care Institute training webinars. And again, there's over 50 hours of webinars, you name it. We've got the webinar there for them on the topic that, that they need. Um, you know, certificates are there. There's eBooks as well. Whole lot during this, virtual time of ours. Yeah, absolutely. And um, for those that don't know, foster parents have to do a certain amount of continuing education hours to keep their license to be a foster parent. And I know that this can be a pain sometimes for foster parents who are already super busy and both parents in the home need to get their own CEUs. And so sometimes that can be hard because you know, one parent signs up for a four hour training somewhere and then the dad stays home and then dad needs to get his hours. So this would be a way that you could knock out your hours at home and, you know, while you drink some coffee before the kids are up, if that ever happens. <laughs> yes, if that ever happens, that's right. <laughs> so professionally, what are the common themes that you see uh, parents or this population of, of kids needing help with? What's like you're hearing it over and over and over again and you think there needs to be more training or there couldn't be enough training on those topics? Well, foster parents suffer from feelings of grief and loss. 
they don't recognize it though. And the child is removed from their home for whatever reason it might be. Uh, many times foster parents experience those feelings of grief and loss. Their heart breaks as it should, should break because they've given all their heart to the child. And they've given all the love to the child. So when the child leaves, it feels like, it feels like they're losing part of their family. It feels like they may be losing their own child. And that hurts, you know, that hurts emotionally. Uh, and foster parents need to recognize that and, and get more support in that regard. Uh, secondary traumatic stress or compassion fatigue is something also foster parents suffer from, as well as burnout and stress. Those are things that they need help with. Um, for some, it's marriage and foster parenting. You know, anytime you bring a child into your home with anxieties, that's going to be a, a stressful time for anything, including marriages. Um, foster parents also need more help with working with biological family members. Mm. Or maybe birth children and foster children living in the same house. Those are some, some of the important issues that they need. For the children, it's navigating the online world, the social media world. You know, you and I might live in an online world, but today's kids inhabit it. Mm. And as a result, many children in foster care or many children just in need in general um, go online looking for help, looking for a friend looking for someone to care about them or even love them. And that's where the predators are out there waiting for them, lurking, waiting for them, luring them in, snaring them in with false lies, false hopes, false promises. And that's why we see issues of, you know, human trafficking and, and, and worse. Yeah. And I, I know that um, just on my case of the amount of kids that were trying to reach out to their bio parents, um, via social media and that possibly being a dangerous situation for them. Unmonitored, unsupervised communication and many foster parents have no clue is going on. Yes, yes. I can remember a specific case where a girl ran away and they found out later through Facebook messages that she was going to meet um, her biological mom. So yeah, no, those are total, totally relevant topics. Do you see unique issues or challenges with children who have been adopted or that adoptive families have just because i feel like there's this thought that once you sign on the dotted line and once a child's adopted that's the end of the story for them and they got their family and now the parent doesn't get as many resources from department of children and families and the child may not get as many resources so do you have resources for the adoptive parent and do you see unique uh, challenges that they face? Post-adoption depression syndrome, PADS, is very common. 65% of adoptive mothers suffer from some sort of post-adoption depression for a number of reasons, though most don't even recognize it, aren't aware of it, have never heard of it before. Because as you said, they think, okay, we've adopted a child, happy ending ever after. No, not for the, sometimes not for the parent. The child also suffers from post-adoption depression. We're actually, uh, we've actually created a new training webinar on that topic. Yeah. And we also write about it in, um, I think we address it in the book, The Foster Care Survival Guide as well. Okay. Well, I'm definitely linking to that. I had not even heard of that. Um, and, and I think that just like postpartum depression, when women read about it, they go, Oh my gosh, like, thank God there's a, there's a name for this and other people feel it and there's something I can do and just the validation. Okay, well, I'll definitely uh, look into that and, and link to that as well. So I ask everyone who comes on the podcast this, we have a foster care crisis in the United States. 
and we have more and more kids coming into care for various reasons. What, what is your opinion on how we help end the foster care crisis? Oh my goodness, there's so many, so many challenges the foster care system faces. Uh, to begin with, caseworkers need to, they, they're overworked, overwhelmed, under-resourced, understaffed, underpaid, and as a result, they can't meet the demands or give the support that foster parents need as well. There needs to be a, a lower ratio of foster parent to caseworker. As I said, caseworkers are overwhelmed with so much going on, including their own, their caseload. So they need to have less foster parents to caseworker ratio. So those caseworkers have more time to give the foster parents the support they need. Mm -hmm. Because when foster parents feel they're not getting the support they need, they say, I'm out of here. I can't do this anymore. I quit. I can't do mm -hmm. this. I can't. No one's helping me. I'm not getting the help I needed. I've asked for over and over again. No one's paying attention to me. But they don't recognize that case agencies are overwhelmed with, with the high number of kids flooding into the system, not enough foster parents to care for them. Uh, you need to do that. Also, you need to, uh, you know, we talk about this a lot in so many different areas, but the, the families need to, those birth families need to find the support they need before a child's placed into care. And, and as, as well as when the child's returned back home and there's reunification, they need, there needs to be some type of post-support, post-reunification support. Because if 50% of kids from foster care are reunified with their parents, 20% re-enter back into foster care, something's not working there as well. Those are a few things that we could do to help make this crisis a little bit better. In fact, I'm, I'm off to Washington, D.C. Uh, very, very shortly to meet with legislators about reunification and reentry. Does it exist, the reunification support, post-reunification? In some places it does. It does not in many, and uh, it's not enough, to be sure. Yeah. Do you think that bio-parents... Um, would be receptive or would feel like it's you know still someone meddling into their life that's a problem isn't it uh there may be some receptive to it um but there i'm sure there are many who say i don't want to be part of this anymore i don't want you know this foster care system is uh, i don't agree with it uh i didn't do anything wrong or or it's a part of their life they don't want to recognize or acknowledge or remember anymore they just want to move on so yeah there is that fear to be to be sure or many of them are still suffering from their own anxiety their own trauma substance abuse problems as well um housing problems and, and the, yeah lots of issues to be sure are there reunification plans that take place in the courts and if you don't know the answer to this that's fine but that you know okay if you do x y and z you're going to get your ch children back you've done x y and z now you're going to get your children back um and you're going to continue to do x y and z until a certain date yeah, that happens. It happens. But we all know at the end of the day that sometimes the children are returned back home. And, and I'm all about reunification. You know, if it can be a healthy, wonderful uh, situation, absolutely. But there are those times a child's returned back home and it's not a good environment. It's not in the best interest of the child, so to speak. Even though it may look great on paperwork, mm. the reality is this family is not ready for this child yet, or this is not going to be a safe environment. We hear too many horror stories of a child returning back home, suffering even more abuse, being abandoned, being neglected, and even dying. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that you're going to Washington, and I, I hope something comes out of it. I also am just glad that it's that uh, foster care reform is something that's being talked about. 
I think it's a very complex system and it's not just the system. I mean, we're, we're dealing with so many different arms and legs of the system. And that's why I really started this podcast was to talk to police and former foster youth and judges and experts and everyone to see like, rather than blame, you know, one person uh, or multiple people to kind of come together and see what we can do that would make this better because really the system wasn't created to be punitive. Uh, the system was to cr created to help and to stand in the gap. And I just don't think that the way it's implemented feels that way to a lot of people on both sides, foster parents and to biological parents um, often. So I'm excited that you're, that you're going. And I'm sure you'll tell us about it. I know people can join their uh, your newsletter, so uh, and you're pretty um, present on social media. I'll link to all of those uh, places that people can find you. But I know that you keep us well updated on all your work, so that's something that we can look out for, right? Yes, yes. Thank you so much. Well, before we end the interview, is there anything else, like anything real hot? projects or whatever that you want to make sure that you get promoted. I just want to make sure I give you the time. Working on a project right now that I really can't give liberty to discuss, but it would involve um, showcasing foster care in a very, very positive light to our media. And that's all I can really say at this point. Well, that is awesome. We could use more awareness for sure. So I'm excited to hear the details of it when you're when you're ready to disclose or when you can. Well, thank you so much for being on. And I think you're going to be a great resource for any foster adoptive parents that don't already know about you. And for the service providers listening, a resource because you, they can offer this library and some of these tools to uh, those that they serve. So thank you so much for the work you do. And thank you for helping us end the foster care crisis. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you. My pleasure. You have a great afternoon. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I am so glad that I got to do this interview with Dr. John DeGarmo. So much insight from his experience, not only running the Foster Care Institute, but through him being a foster parent himself. So there was a few takeaways that I thought were super important and stood out to me always trying to drop labels. So not saying that this is your foster son or adoptive son, but just saying this is Kyle or calling them by their name. You can say he's staying with us for a while. Uh, you can say what he's interested in, but again, not using the he's a foster kid label, which we've heard, we've heard before, but totally worth reiterating. Another big piece that stood out was documentation. If you're a foster or adoptive parent, documenting events, documenting tough situations, documenting, documenting, documenting. It is helpful if somebody asks you to explain what happened, it keeps things accurate for you, it keeps you knowing the details, and you never know, you know, which person, doctor, school, social worker, court is going to ask you the details of something. So having it written down very clearly for yourself so that you can remember and be prepared to have those answers is really helpful for you. And it also protects you 
from incidents that might be false allegations later. I know false allegations is something that we never want to think happens, but it actually happens quite often because these kids do know what reporting is. They know uh, what it is to make an allegation, and they know that that can also bring in possibly a new placement or some new attention. So there's some incentive, honestly, for them to make uh, those allegations. And then finally, the stress on respite care. I just, I always knew that foster parents needed a licensed foster provider to be able to watch their kids if they were going to do anything, have a date night, go out of town, anything you needed typical babysitter for. Foster parents cannot just have the girl next door watch the kids. They have to be a licensed foster placement. And guess what? All the other licensed foster placements probably are overwhelmed and not really wanting to give you a date night necessarily or, or able to. So it would be an awesome gift if you're interested in this work at all, but you're not ready to be a foster parent. If you can go get licensed, do the classes, get licensed to be a foster placement, and then you just tell them that you only wanna be a respite placement, and then open your home temporarily so that these parents can get a break and be the best foster parents that they can be. I just never hear that often about people getting trained just to be respite providers. And that seems a lot less daunting uh, because you're not becoming a full-fledged foster parent, although you're eligible to, and it allows you to dip your toe into fostering, but while only taking on kids that are already placed and have a place to go back to, they just need, uh, you know, an an evening or a weekend for you to take those kids. So that's a great way to be able to help. And you can just go to your local foster care agency, uh, you know, Google how to become a foster parent in my area and talk to them about how you can get licensed to be a foster home and only provide respite. I think Dr. John really provided so many nuggets of wisdom here, but he actually provides ongoing support in his Facebook group. There's actually 16,000 members in his foster parent help and support group, and he often goes live just for question and answers. So you're having an issue, he's there to kind of answer your, your problems or your questions or your concerns and he will speak live he goes on often i've seen over the last week him going on every single night at 7 p.m just to answer your questions just to be a support it is obvious that his heart is in this and making this journey not so isolating for foster parents so if you're on facebook you can search foster parent help and support group i'll also link it uh, but like I said, he has 16,000 members and a lot of different parents posting in that with a lot of other parents giving advice as, as well as uh, Dr. John DeGarmo. I currently am really looking to amp up my listener base. So if you guys could do me a favor and just promote the Stable Moments podcast on your social media and tell people to go and subscribe and tell them that it's a good resource for foster and adoptive parents or anybody that serves this community. That would be really helpful for us to gain some listeners and it would help us attract even more qualified speakers, more engaging speakers, which would make the content even that much better. So thank you for your help in that. I look forward to talking to you guys next week.